X-Ray. And welcome to the Beer Vana Show, broadcast in Portland on X-Ray FM and available anywhere on your favorite podcast service. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. I am back. I am back in the younger son's bedroom, in case people are keeping track. Where is Patrick now? It would always show you in your house. Yeah. That's true. That's all That's all I ever do. In my little house with all my family, everyone's on their own respective devices, either edu- educating or getting educated. <laughs> I have an app for my, my lights. I might change it to something cool like Fuchsia now. Well, there you go. Because I'm in a teenager room and teenagers have colored lights. I have no such thing. Um, <laughs> it's been a long time since I've been exposed to teenagers other than your own. Uh, so we, we join you together, but we are socially distant. And uh, in our respective homes, the person I'm talking to is Jeff Allworth. He writes about beer. He's written books, including The Beer Bible, Secrets of Master Brewers, and The Woodmere Way. And with me is Patrick Emerson. He is a professor of economics at Oregon State University, um, trying to uh, avoid the COVID, I guess. Uh, do you, are, are, do you, will you be going to the campus at all this year? Or everything is completely... This term, yeah, I mean, the calendar year, no, I don't think I will set foot. In fact, for the first time ever, I didn't even buy a parking pass for this term because everything's closed. The My building is officially closed. You can only enter and go to your office with, with special permission. Um, there are students on campus. They have opened the dorms, but there are no live classes except for ones that really absolutely require physical presence. But that's not true for our department. So we're all online. And uh, we're pretty much all distant. So no, I'm just going to be sitting in my house uh, teaching from home. I guess that's the world we live in these days. Yeah. And then, you know, it'll be a term by term thing in Oregon State. Like a lot of West Coast institutions don't know why, but we're on quarters. So there'll be a winter quarter in January, February, early March. Uh, Maybe that will be uh, alive, but I kind of doubt it. And then there's a spring one. So there's two more chances that we might actually end up on campus. Right. Uh, winter, winter winter, will become the first one that's really complicated for me because I have two classes that I'd really have to figure out how I'm going to deliver remotely. Um, I'm, so I'm I'm just kind of willfully ignoring, <laughs> ignoring that, <laughs> hoping that the world will change in between now and then. Oh, that's surely a safe bet. Uh, yep. We're yep. definitely going to lick this virus by... Uh, uh, by the first of the year, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, our dear leader says so, so shut up. Uh, there you go. There you go. <laughs> He's a trustworthy guy. Uh, yeah. And it's it's now we're full on fall. It's time to uh, to start switching from the uh, the light summer, like Hellas Pilsner beers into something maybe with a little more kick. A little more yeah, get up, right. a little more get up and go. And so today we're going to go back and once again, because there's you can never talk too much about this, uh, talk about India Pale Ales, a subject that we love and are near and dear to our heart. As American craft brew enthusiasts, how can it not be? That's right. Uh, <laughs> so this broad category is at the center of craft brewing, uh, and as such, is always changing. Over the past several months, perhaps dating back as far as 2019, we have been noticing a shift in the buzziest member of the IPA family. Hazy IPAs. They seem to be getting a bit more bitter, a bit drier, and maybe even a bit less cloudy. Meanwhile, the regular IPAs are getting fruitier and cloudier. What's going on with IPAs? And we'll delve into that soon. But first, of course, we have to get to the news. Dun, dun, dun. 
<laughs> this just in over the this just in uh, I think I think I even did the one where then we go to the news helicopter uh, that <laughs> <laughs> you may have done that. the traffic helicopter <laughs> that never uh, fails that's good comedy okay a recent joint report issued by a number of trade organizations has grim news for the brewing industry the economic group who conducted the study expect more than 650,000 jobs supported by the U.S. beer industry will be lost by the end of the year due to the COVID-19 pandemic. These job losses include more than 3,600 brewing jobs, 1,800 distributing jobs, and 400,000 retail-related jobs. The report forecasts retail beer sales declining by more than $22 billion. Ouch. Yeah. I would yeah. think that the, mo- the the retail stuff is almost all on premise, like bars, and rest- bars and restaurants, right? Yeah, that's what I would guess too. And 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 you know they they account for the overwhelming majority of uh, jobs lost there. Um, yeah. So that's, I guess, worth noting. Um, but but still, I think the twenty two billion is that's real money and that's real bad. It's super grim, and you can just see it. Fall is here. All of this street dining tables they've set up. Portland's been aggressive about letting bars and restaurants set up seating areas out in the, in the former parking spots in front of their businesses. But now it's getting cold, it's getting wet, and uh, things are contracting rapidly, I suspect. Yeah. I, I mean, I've been trying to get out as much as possible. And, you know, we, we, we tend to have a, a fairly mild fall. So I suspect well into October, I'm gonna there's going to be nights uh, when we can still get out. Although it's starting to get dark early, too. So um yeah, it's, uh, it it's is. the weather's I mean, definitely changing. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I think yeah, this is my this is the going to be the hard part right now. It's going into the winter, fall into winter. Yeah, it's going to get dark, and we're just going to be huddled in our little dark houses, and it's going to be cold and wet, and we're not going to be able to go anywhere. It's going to suck. And the only bright light will be the IPAs, but we'll get to that. <laughs> That's right. We'll we'll have to find light where we can, liquid light. But before we have that, uh, I have more happy news. Oh, good. According to, yes. According to Nielsen data, uh, hard seltzer now accounts for 10% of all beer sales. Yeah. Uh, yay. Nielsen doesn't capture a lot of smaller craft brewery sales, so this may understate things marginally. Uh, but sales of off-premise beer, that is supermarkets and convenience stores, have accelerated during the pandemic, while draft sales have plummeted, exacerbating the situation. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, in other uh, personal news, we'll be rebranding the show. Seltzer this week with our new sponsor, uh, White Claw or Bud Light Seltzer. Somebody. Yeah, we're, we're excited about this new <laughs> new adventure. Uh, beer, That's right. is, beer is dead, so we're all about seltzer every week. That's <laughs> what right. New ca- what new chemical Today, flavorings? Mango. <laughs> they came out with a new mango chemical. <laughs> uh, it's it's clear that we're big fans. It's a flash. Don't worry, Jeff. It's going away. Yeah, I know. I know you say that. I know you have. Are you still? You It'll take that. a few years. It'll take a few years. I'm not saying it's going away tomorrow. Okay. But I'm, but I'm saying uh, there'll be a time when you look back on seltzers just the way you look back on old Bartles, Bartles and James. <laughs> or the way some people look back on Bartles and James, those of us who were alive when they were being made. <laughs> the few of us left. By uh, the way, speaking of grim news, and I don't know why I bring this up now on a beer podcast, so forgive me. But, well, I can tell you why it <laughs> popped into my head because I was donating some furniture to the Vietnam Veterans of America, some old furniture. And I was starting to think, you know, Vietnam veterans are, are, gonna, are starting to die off. Like there's not going to be that many left soon. 
Yeah, I know. And that makes me feel super old. Yeah, me too. I remember when Vietnam vet, when, when veterans were first coming into my consciousness, Vietnam vets were like 40 in their 40s. And then, you know, the oldest maybe in their 50s. And I just kind of fixed it in my head. Vietnam vets. So they're the, they're the young vets. It's the old World War II vets. They're in their 70s and 80s. Yeah. And, you know, think, Ew. So speaking of bottles yeah. and chains. So that they, were in their 50s. they used to be. They're the vets that drank <laughs> bottles and chains. That's right. Yeah, that's right. I was reminded also of that because my, um, my father who passed away a number of years ago, I was finally going through some old boxes and I found his draft card. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, so that that sort of also reminded me. Yeah, that was a thing for my father's generation. Did he uh, serve, or did he? Was it a? Did he get a good number? He did not. He by that point he was married with kids, um, so he. Uh, uh, I think uh, uh. I, I don't remember the categorizations. I think his card says three C or something. That's pretty low. I think one A is the first one, and so he never got his number. Number never came up, and I always suspected that there maybe that was the reason why he and my mother had kids so young. <sighs> Right. Yeah. But who knows? They would never speak of such a thing. Indeed. I mean, yeah, that's, it's fascinating. That was, I think, probably a big driver of earlier uh, kids, people having kids younger. Maybe, maybe. If he was alive today, maybe I would ask him, but he's not, so I can't. My mom, by the way, is off to jolly old England. She's leaving us and and might stay for ever. So what? Bye mom. Back, back to the home country. Holy crap! Well, that's a that, we, we're going to have to take that offline. That's a, you just dropped a big bomb there. Uh, yeah. Your mom, uh, for the listeners, uh, lives in your neighborhood, so yeah. that will change she's a lot my, in your she, life. Yeah, she's my soon to be no longer neighbor. Uh, off to be the my sister's neighbor um, in London. So, right, right. So get ready, London. Wow. Uh, Good news. <laughs> All right. So we, we hardly talked about anything about beer. So let, let's get back to the, the, the topic. The last of the beer podcast before we switch to seltzers. That's um, right. <laughs> so we're going out big on IPAs. Remember when they were a thing? Uh, <laughs> IPAs are here to stay, man. But as we're going to uh, talk about today, who knows what an IPA is going to be in 10 years? That's right. We actually, I, I saw something in the pot, in the uh, mailbag that actually brings, harmonizes these two topics, seltzer and IPA. So that's interesting, but we'll yeah. get to that later. All right. Uh, you need to start because, you know, the dog of the pod has made a number of, uh, of appearances. I don't think we've ever had the cat of the pod come, but the cat of the pod's outside my door making a ruckus. So I'm going to go get the pat, cat while you introduce our topic here. Okay. Uh, we are, well, we're, this one is one of our loose topics. We just thought it would be good to get back into IPAs because this is a thing everybody cares about, but uh, it's something that uh, just as soon as you think you have it kind of fixed in your mind, it seems to be shifting. And and we've noticed that the, the you know, like five years ago, hazy IPAs came on the market and they created a category that was very distinct and obvious and dis- different. Yes. And ever since that five years, it seems like it's gotten murkier and murkier and hazier and hazier. And I thought it would be great, a great time to, for you and I to sit down and talk about IPAs. Maybe, I don't know if we want to start drinking them. It's still in the AM, uh, but we are, we are true professionals. So we could, we could do that. Oh yeah. It's well past, Uh, it's well past lunchtime in the East coast in Europe. It's evening. So really (laughs) time is just a, a state of mind, isn't it? Exactly. So we'll, okay. we'll, pretend we're, we'll pretend we're in London speaking of, and, and it's time. We're, we're past you, man. We're getting, 
we're slow. We gotta we gotta catch up with our friends here. That's true. Yeah. I have a Bend Brewing Fresh Trop, which is their Tropical Pines IPA in Fresh Hop variety, which I'm very excited to have. It's Fresh Hop season here in Portland, Oregon. It is. State of Oregon, actually. And uh, I had one of these last night. They're quite intense. So I'm going in for that. What do you have? Sweet. I have an Ecliptic Brewing Phaser Hazy IPA, and we'll talk about how they've evolved because I, I, I consider this kind of a if you can call something modern that's not from a year ago or you know what i mean like uh uh it's a it's a it's a distinctly modern or maybe i would even describe it as like an oregon uh hazy in that it's a little drier a little has a pretty significant bitter back and it's actually maybe my favorite or one of my very favorite hazy so this is the ecliptic yeah it's a ecliptic phaser it is a good one all right so mine just to let the listener know is is not a hazy um it has the tiniest hint of a shimmer it would it looks kind of like a, a keller beer actually so this is this is very much not a hazy so there are still distinctions to be drawn in the, the world of ipas yes and uh, two things i was going to mention about fresh hop season in oregon is that suddenly fresh hop season is largely packaged which is a big yep. change and i actually haven't had too many so you'll have to tell me how they're they're presenting themselves in packages you can tell me about that one and then the second thing is that uh ipa is often the chosen base beer for a fresh hop presentation yeah that's right something in the the pale to ipa range um i've been i've actually kind of started to talk about these as hoppy american ales I, ipa is a decent shorthand but now that we have IPAs as low as 4% alcohol and as strong as 12% alcohol, and we have pale ales in there, we're kind of talking about a continuum of, of beers that are characterized by vivid American hops. Um, so that's that's sort of what we're all talking about here. And yeah, I think most of the fresh hops that we have are fresh hop beers, are either pales or IPAs, and they really exhibit these hops. Oh, man. I hope you enjoyed my... Uh my audio beer porn there. It was, it was pretty good. It's pretty Even good. Even without Edwina, you got something. Well, yeah. And, and I hope so because I sort of sacrificed my son's desk. I spilled beer on it. <laughs> when I poured mine out, I, I tried to really get the, the sound of the pour, uh, which is hard because I wear a headset and I kind of have to, it's difficult. I don't know if you could hear that, but it, I created a, I, I poured basically a, a, a pint of head to try to try to get the sound of pouring. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do have a little excess head myself. Yeah, what a bad dad I am. I'm here at ten thirty in the morning drinking beer in my son's bedroom. Uh, he's in high school. He can he can fend for himself. Don't don't call the authorities. This, this would be a bad <laughs> look right now. <laughs> it's true. Uh, you know. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm doing it for professional reasons. It's all for the art. Reasons. It's all for the art. It's okay, good. so this is, by the way, this is um. A pretty uh, uh, classic hazy in that it's hazy. <laughs> it's it's pretty opaque. It's it's lighter colored. It's not like uh, milkshakey though, um, and that's one thing we can talk about the evolution. This is not like a glass of orange juice. Uh, still looks like beer. It's got a nice head um, and super aromatic. Mm -hmm. Ah, just like bursting with with uh, aroma. We can actually, I don't think we planned this, uh, except at a, an intuitive, instinctive, highly professional level. Yes. But we can use our two beers as uh, a little historical mapping of how IPAs have, have evolved in the United States. Mine is this kind of clear version, and it's, it's vividly hopped and quite bitter. And man, oh man, 
Um, I have one of these cans for you. You are going to be impressed with this thing. It is, it's got a ton of fresh hop character. Uh, so it's got that kind of oily, sappy, resinous thing. And it's got that chlorophyll thing that comes from the, the, the just the massive hop load that yes. brewers put in these. And it's got a ton of conventional bitterness too. So it's like a steam roller. <laughs> nice. Really, really reminds me of those like uh, mid-aught, um, a well-made uh, bitter, bitterer West Coast IPAs. Um, it's it's just saturated in uh, flavor, aroma, and bitterness, especially. Yeah, uh, and mine is much more modern. But why don't we take yours as the starting point and let's um, sort of talk about the evolution of American IPAs? Yeah, I mean, it started with Americans getting really excited about the bitterness, which was kind of a weird thing to do. And so there were the bitter wars. So people became interested in the style and they started to amp up the bitterness. And then we're Americans. So everybody went crazy with bitterness and <laughs> got more and more and more bitter. And people were boasting on their on their packaging, how many IBUs they had. Um, I think actually the IBU metric is probably kind of an artifact of that. People were, were really proud, like 212 IBUs they would broadcast on their beers. Yeah, but beer that will melt your face. That's right. But they, but they were, out, of course, out of balance and I think not especially palatable uh, for the most part, those, those ones that went for the most extreme bitterness. There were other examples. I think one of the, one of the absolutely classic, perfect examples of a really well-made beer from this, style, from this era is a Russian River's Blind Pig. Mm -hmm. It's a it's a real snappy, sharp, uh, bitter IPA, but it's well balanced and fairly aromatic. Uh -huh. uh, it's got that piney aromatic. Yeah. That's another thing too. This was an era before uh, the modern hop boom. So we're we're talking uh, Citra was released in 2007. So these are these beers are getting made out of Centennial, Cascade, the Sea Hops, Chinook. Right. Uh, so they're they're really leaning in the piney direction. Yep. And and then at a certain point, brewers realized, you know, and particularly when when Citra came along and, and, and more saturated flavor Amarillo started in the in the odds, I think, they had really juicy flavors. And so brewers started to use the hops differently, put them uh, later in the boil or after the boil and dry hopping to get that juicy character. And that sort of led into the transition into what what would become hazy IPAs. Do you want to? Yeah, well, I was going to say hazy? that in, in, in addition to the, the face melting bitterness, um, I also found there was kind of a, a dank, sort of the murky dank IPA of the time might have also been a precursor to hazies. The ones I'm thinking of are things like Barry Public's Racer 5 and, and um, Fort George Vortex, for example, they're sort of oh, right. super, oh. yeah, kind of super sat, super dank, saturated, but in a different, a different way. Not the kind of with the bright citrus notes back then, but more of the, you know, the piney and yeah, and cannabisy. Can yeah, I was, I was gonna say, it, but then I was editing myself. Yeah, kind of the more the ganja kind of uh, hop notes. Yeah, yeah, and that was, and and we started to see kind of a fragmentation of IPA approaches. San Diego had very clear. Uh, IPAs with not a lot of crystal malt. The Northwest ours were pretty hazy, um, more more flavor and aroma hops. In Colorado, there was a lot more crystal malt. Mm -hmm. And you know, in New England, where the real hazies, the the kind of quintessential hazies got started, um, there was no particular interest in hops 
through the 80s and 90s and most of the aughts. When you talk about a, a New England IPA from that period, you're talking about an English IPA. So a lot of very balanced, not very much hop character, a lot of malt. Right. Uh, maybe an English yeast strain, maybe maybe some diacetyl, which was fairly common in New England at the time. Very English. And then all of a sudden, these these breweries, Treehouse, Alchemist, especially it was a first one, the Alchemist with Hetty Topper was kind of the progenitor. Yep. Hill Farmstead, uh, Trillium, Bissell Brothers. Did I miss anybody there? There's others uh, who 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 kind of started producing these very hoppy beers uh, that were made with much more late edition hops and these English yeast strains. Right. And the English yeast strains, which were characteristic of, of New England, uh, combined with the with the wheat and sometimes oats that brewers were putting in these these beers to create uh, incredibly murky, <laughs> um, almost opaque orange Julius looking uh, beers. Yes, and that was so. Now we have like, you know, we're, we're talking about in the early 2010s. We have this cool thing happening in the United States where we've got all these different expressions of IPAs and the ways in which brewers can use hops to create flavor and aroma and different presentations. So it was, it was actually kind of a cool thing then. You know, we didn't have an – it wasn't super national at the time. What – you know, my impression, you can disabuse me or confirm this, is that the sort of the co-evolution of late edition hops, uh, flavor and aroma hops, at the same time, new – hop varieties were coming out that really presented lots of flavor and aroma. Um, it was sort of going hand in hand because I remember uh, distinctly there's, you know, these few moments I remember being up in uh, Bellingham and having a, uh, an IPA. I don't remember what they called it at the time, but it was a boundary Bay IPA and it was one that was much hazier than I was used to and uh, presented a lot of flavor and aroma, but it was more of the sort of piney floral hops or more maybe cascades and, um, it was before the, you know, the citras and other uh, more citrus type hops came along. But at but that point, it seemed like a much, uh, a, a distinct flavor and aroma presentation that I hadn't seen before. Um, and so I wonder, was, you know, what sort of the, the chicken and the egg question here? No, I think you're exactly right. And this is, I, I, my, my view on this, I think it's slightly controversial. Uh, and, and it, and it's that the New England, the, th the stuff that was happening in New England was not actually distinctive to New England, except in the sense that it was a more exaggerated version. Um, across the country, there were breweries exactly what you're describing. These new hops came out and they had so much tropicality, a real fruitiness that almost tracked a sweetness mm -hmm. that, uh, and, and, and in many cases, they were very high alpha hops. So alpha acids are the potential for bitter or bittering in, in hops. It's usually expressed as a percentage, and old Amer uh, old European landrace hops will have alpha acids of like three to five percent. Yeah, um, not not very high. These hops, um, when you're talking about uh, your Citra, your Mosaic, your Amarillo, these are twelve to like uh, fifteen, sometimes even higher alpha acid percentages. So <clears throat> when when brewers were using these, not only were they they trying to figure out how to get more of the flavor and aroma characteristic, which expressed itself as fruit, right. but they, but they were getting so much bitterness because these things had so much bittering potential that that also forced them to push the hops into a place where it would extract less of that bitterness, which is to say later in the brewing process, the end of boil, um, after the boil in the, in the whirlpool and in dry hopping. Yeah. 
and and it was happening across the country, right? So um, I, I had the the nice opportunity in 2015 to do my national beer bible beer bible uh, tour, mm-hmm. and that was exactly the moment that uh, the hazies were starting to become known outside of New England, but really before anybody was aware of them as a phenomenon. And even at that point, every single place I went to in the country, um, the juicy, the juiciness was already uh, a thing. And and by that time, so we're talking about the mid 2010s, mm-hmm. bitterness was being way downplayed. Everybody was trying to get away from those incredibly bitter beers yeah. that we had a decade earlier. So in the way that I would sort of think of that I think about it uh, is with many things. The sort of you had the pendulum swing really far in one direction early. That was super bitter, and it was a point of pride, and people were out there looking for the bitter, the most bitter beer they could find. And and then it swung, it swung <laughs> all the way to the other end, uh, and it and it swung, 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 swung. I don't know. I don't know. Swung. I think. <laughs> I think swung. I think swung. What is swing? Is swing? A I don't thing? think swing. I don't, I don't think swing's a thing. <laughs> maybe. maybe uh you know it's a living language we can make it a thing uh okay. <laughs> and then uh and then it became just this you know these new hops came along and and uh they presented so beautifully and so it became all of this like getting out that incredible flavor and aroma and sweetness and so you sort of had this really uh extreme sweet ipas and um uh, and that went along with this um, visual presentation as well. These really hazy, murky things. That's right. Uh, although, although the, as we just talked about, the hazy and murkiness had started to come in. But anyway, sort of the pendulum sort of swung, swung through the middle, and then all the way out to the other extreme. And now I feel like the pendulum's kind of settling, you know, as as it does over time. Uh, yeah, into something think, in the I middle. Think, I think I think what happened in, in around 2015 is there was this movement towards the the sweet fruitiness. Uh, that was happening nationwide, but it was the New England expression of that trend, yeah. uh, the hazy IPA, which really captured the imagination of the country. And it was the most exaggerated version of it. Right. Uh, and just which is how you kind of which is how you capture attention. Right. So that sort of makes sense. That it totally, especially especially in the United States, like the bitterness wars yeah. a decade earlier. Uh, this was like the the most intense version. And to kind of walk through the characteristics of, of the classic New England hazy IPA, which uh, if you want to go back to pod 43 from three, <laughs> Good for you. three years ago. Thank you. I, I put that in the liner notes. I <laughs> wanted to make sure I got that right. Uh, we I, I, I visited uh, Sally's family in New England and I brought back a bunch of hazy IPAs and we tasted them uh, for pod 43, which is actually quite a fun uh, podcast. Yeah. So go listen to that if you I, haven't heard that one. One of, the, one of the ones I actually remember. Yeah, I know. I remember about the first half of it, and then we had about 13 <laughs> Gets a little bit uh, fuzzy after that. But the what what we learned there, and and I'm sure that many people have discovered with these IPAs, is they have these various characteristics, and they include uh, thick bodies, mm-hmm. so kind of a really you know not thin but very very full thick uh, like milky mouthfeels. Yeah, yeah. They're of course murky to almost opaque. Um, they have an intense juiciness that comes both from those new variety hops that we talked about, um, which now include uh, all these new new things like talus and 
Sabro and stuff we can't even call to mind because they're coming so fast. Mm -hmm. uh, but also English yeast strains, which produce uh, fruity esters, uh, which harmonize and accentuate those fruity flavors from hops. Right. Um, they have low bitterness and uh, quite a bit of residual sweetness. And in brewing, uh, we talk about residual sweetness as a, a degree of Plato often or uh, specific gravity. So this is how much sugar is left in solution. Regular IPA will probably be around three Plato. Mm -hmm. These things are like four or five Plato. So quite a bit sweeter, uh, which is part of where you get that, that really thick body. Right. So they're very thick, very sweet, very, very, very juicy. And it seemed like people were just pushing the envelope, like how, you know, how, how opaque can we make it? How sweet can we make it? How juicy can we make it? Like, yep. we're, we got, it's this, we got to make it go to 11. We're Americans. Yeah. And I think, uh, uh, I don't know, you know, who knows how these things actually evolve, but you know, when they sort of hit the West coast, I think West coast brewers started saying, you know, this is cool, but, uh, how about something that's a little more balanced with some bitterness? Cause that's how I, I view the kind of the West coast presentation of these beers. Right. And I think now we're coming into the modern thing and I, what I wanted to talk to you about, cause you and I are are pretty big IPA fans. Yes. No surprise. Even though we talk about Pilsners and other things a lot, we we actually drink a lot of pails and IPAs. You know, we, we started noticing this a long time ago. Like, I don't remember when Breakside came out with What, what Rough Beast, which was their first hazy. Yep. But we were both uh, surprised to see a little bit of bitterness in it and, and felt like it was a really good touch. And that was, I don't know, maybe three years ago or something. Yeah, long time ago. Uh, yeah, you know, as these trends go, kind of yes. early in the trend. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and and you just mentioned it, mentioned it with Phaser. We we noticed that here in the in the Northwest, we were seeing a little bit more bitterness. But I, I, my sense is that that is uh, happening nationwide. And in fact, I got a uh, a Lawson's. Lawson is another one of those Vermont breweries that are kind of famous. Hazy is called Sip of Sunshine, and they had a new version that was. Bigger, small, a little smaller, little sip. That's what it was called. Mm -hmm. They sent that to me over the summer and um, it had quite a bit of bitterness. You know, it was it was definitely much more in balance than some of the most extreme examples we saw. And that comes from one of the canonical members of the Hazy Vermont Club. Yeah, I, that's, that's actually sort of a question I was uh, going to ask is, do you think that this sort of pendulum swing back to the middle is is a nationwide trend? I do think it's nationwide, and I think it's because um, you know there's there's always this push pull we talk about between the, the the brewer and the customer. The brewer is pushing things out, and the and then the customers are pulling like we want more of this, and the brewer's like, well, you should try this. And there's this kind of communication that happens. Yeah, and I think uh, brewers get that the pull during the high hazy uh, trend was for as sweet and juicy as possible. But I think brewers have started to push slightly more bitter beers and slightly drier beers, which kind of put everything a little bit more harmony. Yeah. And I think that this is just a, a matter of, you know, that same process is kind of a matter of education as well, right? So the brewers are like, yeah, that's great. You know, you want those things. Let me show you this. That's a little more balanced. That has a little bit of a bitter, uh, a bitter counterweight. And uh, maybe you'll like it even better. What's amazing to me is that even, you know, here in Oregon, where we're very parochial and, you know, <laughs> have our own thing going, you know, hazies have taken over. And in fact, 
if you go to a pub or a brewery here, you know, you almost always find one or two hazies now because people just just demand them and expect them and and are drinking the heck out of them. Yeah, they they do. Uh, one thing that I have started to notice, and I noticed it, it kind of came out with there's there's kind of a blending that's happened. So there are there are I, I noticed that people are not always using the word hazy anymore. But then you'll get a beer and it's a hazy, and I'm kind of surprised about that. But then I taste it, and I'm like, well, it's not quite as hazy. Uh, on, on Pod 43, we uh, we introduced the hazometer, uh, to, you know, with with opaque, perfectly opaque being 10 and perfectly clear being one. And yeah. we were, you know, we were we were seeing that the the most hazy of the New Englands were, you know, eights or nines, and um, so I, I'm getting I'm getting these IPAs that are like fives, you know, pretty darn hazy, but like not eh, not quite not quite in the opaque category, but like pretty darn hazy. And then they're pretty juicy, but they're also a little bit drier, but they're also a little bit bitterer. But so they fall into this category, and I, and they're not named hazy, but they kind of look hazy. And I, I don't know what to make of them. And yeah, it's interesting. This is where I feel the collapsing is happening. Yeah, I, I agree. There's a middle ground that's not easy to define anymore. And it's true, like in the Northwest, you rarely find the old, now I'm going to call them old school, like super hazies, which are sort of bright, you know, bright orange, completely opaque, uh, taste just like orange juice kind of hazy. Right, exactly. Those have sort of vanished. Yeah, they're gone now. And now it's sort of this middle ground where even like the normal IPAs will have a little haze in them you know, maybe just do, just not filter them or not condition them as long or something. I think that, that brewers kind of understand that that IPA now has got a bit of a connotation of having that murkiness or that cloudiness. Uh, and so it's just kind of a, a spectrum in the middle now where, you know, the hazometer from like four to seven or something like that on the hazometer is what you find. <laughs> right. And and some of them are called hazies and some aren't. And yep. It's it's really kind of blended weirdly. We I, I got a batch of uh, Old Town Brewing here in Portland, Oregon. One of my favorite breweries. They have a flagship IPA, of course, because they're an Oregon brewery. Um, <laughs> you know, it's kind of out of date now, and it's almost more in the English style. And in fact, I think it's won awards at the GABF for in the English IPA category. And they really wanted to, you know, it's mod. <laughs> it, it was time. Uh, to update that to customer expectations. Yeah. So they created a new flagship. Uh, which is just called Old Town IPA. And, you know, it's kind of interesting. You don't, it's not so often that a brewery is like, okay, we're scrapping our old flagship IPA and we're just reintroducing a totally new flagship IPA. Yeah. And what they created was this beer that is, I, I would say a four on the hazometer. Mm -hmm. Not super hazy, but definitely not clear. And it's made with Citra, Eldorado, and Amarillo. Very <laughs> juicy hops. Yeah. But it's got a fair amount of bitterness. And it's even somehow they coaxed out of those hops a little bit of a pine flavor, which I feel like is a wink to locals. Uh -huh. um, but of course, it smells extremely juicy and it's got a very juicy uh, palate as well. So uh, and they just call it IPA. But it's one of those things where it's like, well, this thing is definitely you wouldn't call this a West Coast, like a classically West Coast IPA. It's, you know, it's just maybe I'm alone on this, but I feel like we're entering this realm where um the lines are no longer as clear and it's difficult to know, uh, uh, you know, b based on these definitions that are now five years old, maybe. Yeah. And there's another thing that I've, another thing that I've noticed. Um, no, I think you're absolutely right on all that. Uh, but another thing I've noticed too is, um, and maybe this is 
a coming trend or just a, a few one-offs, but super saturated beers that have all of this, those characteristics, super saturated, citrus, modern flavors, uh, even a bit tropical, but at the same time, perfectly bright. I, I feel like there's a few brewers out there who want to sort of show people that, you know, the haziness doesn't, isn't what brings you all, all of this flavor. And so I've had a couple of those beers and, and unfortunately I can't, I can't name one off the top of my head, but I've had a couple of those beers that are just super, super saturated with flavor. Actually, I think that uh, Ecliptic has one, and I can't remember the name of it, but but they aren't hazy. So I'm, I'm I'm curious to see sort of how much that visual presentation is going to going to remain kind of the hallmark. Yeah, uh, Ninkasi has a, a beer called Prismatic IPA, yeah, which is good. like that. that's a good example. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. So that so that's kind of uh, an interesting. Flip side, and the word "juicy" is come has come around to kind of describe the fruitiness and intensity of the the flavors. Without the, you know, it's like the hazy was always a proxy for this fruitiness, this this intense flavor and aroma that you get from hops. Right. But the hazy was never actually the thing that caused that. It was always the hops themselves. <laughs> so um, so it, it, is, it is possible to totally make a very juicy, uh, to make an IPA that has all the character that people wanted from a hazy without being hazy. And, and, and usually people use the word juicy to describe that. Exactly. I mean, I think for a, for, uh, for a long time or now, maybe, <laughs> uh, the the two are have been used or at least considered sort of synonyms in in beer, at least in terms of the punters, right? So uh, you think when you hear hazy, you think juicy. Uh, when you when you hear juicy, you think hazy. And so I think that part of it is kind of the brewer's attempt to sort of say, no, juicy is juicy, and I can make you, I can make just as much juiciness <laughs> with or without the haze. Yeah, you're right. It will be interesting to see if that that association ever gets fully broken. Yeah, because I think it's it's fracturing now. Yeah. By the way, I wanted to I, me I meant to mention this earlier when we were talking about sort of the evolution, but I wonder what you think the role of the South Pacific hops had. I feel like they were the precursors to all these modern North American hops that have so much citrus and uh, and flavor that that my first experience with super fruity flavors was more of a tropical presentations that I got from those South Pacific hops. Yeah, it's a really good point. I had never considered that, but um, you're right. The at the moment, I, I don't know how old Nelson Sauvin is, but it seems like wh while Citro was being introduced and becoming a big deal, we were seeing a lot of Nelson Sauvin. Yeah, uh, which is you know one of those kiwi hops that's that that is it's if we if we if we divide hops up into categories, we would say there's there's a certain modern hop that is characterized by intense fruitiness and juiciness and tropicality, not always tropical fruit, but, um, and in the case of Nelson Sauvin, it's much more of a wine grape fruit fruitiness. Yeah. So they, they can vary, but yeah, I think you're, you're totally right that, that that was the same era we were seeing as they were, as American brewers were experimenting with Citra early on, that was when Nelson was coming on. And, uh, and there were, I think, uh, another kiwi or two, and then I'm not sure on Galaxy, which is a the Australian juicy hop, came along. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you're right. Um, and, and you and I actually did our Great Britain tour uh, in 2011, so almost a decade ago now, and we were seeing a lot of those in the juicy hops in Britain. Yes, yeah, and that's exactly where I would actually point to as my first sort of super saturated fruity beer. I felt 
was one that I had there. I think it was a Thornbridge um, Kipling. Kipling. Yeah, I think that was the first one. One, one of those pivotal beers that lives in your in my in my, my little brain. <laughs> There's so much fruitiness, and it all came from the hops. And that was the first time I can, in my consciousness, recall sort of that super fruity uh, flavor that came right from the hops. And that was all from South Pacific hops. I think mostly Nelson Salvins, but I'm not sure. I mean, I think it's an incredibly important point. You know, we the thing that changed from those those uh, mid aughts mm-hmm. super bitter beers, which had their own kind of attraction, and we're seeing some of those come back. And in fact, I'm drinking one right now. This thing is so resinous and sappy. It, <laughs> it it provides a kind of experience that I've kind of forgotten about, which is that the collection uh, almost, I feel like if I were to stick my tongue out and look at it in the mirror, it would be yellow from <laughs> lupulin glands. It's just like intense, intense hoppiness. And it's, there's something incredibly pleasant about it, but it's a very, it's a, it's like, I'm going to put some death metal on, you know, it's like, boom, we're going to, we're going to go hardcore. It's very different than, these, this other experience that you're describing with Kipling that I think we all had with certain certain varieties of uh, hops or, or certain beers where the the scales fell off our eyes and we thought, oh my God, the potential for hopping is so bigger than I ever imagined. Yeah. This is, this is, these flavors are crazy. Yeah. Cause I think that early on, you kind of equated the two, right? Flavor and bitterness. Was, was almost uh, seen as having to go together. So part of what you liked about super bitter beers is I also had like a big flavor kick. And that's probably yeah. true because they were just dumping a ton, a ton of hops in the early boil. Uh, but um, yeah, I mean, Kipling was a super soft, very light beer. I don't think it was very strong. I think it was maybe 5%, something like that. And and just light. Pro- probably less than that, yeah. probably four. And I think maybe the main flavor characteristic is really the one you get on your nose, both the 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 uh all right you have to i i remember this now like retronasal and orthonasal or retronasal and what's the other one you got it man no don't 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 correct yourself you got it the first time yes yeah <laughs> first time i think that that those senses had been really fully engaged if that makes sense right. like or at least consciously i'm sure they are always totally. fully engaged but the first time i was like wow you know i'm getting just tons of aroma and it's really increasing my my enjoyment of this beer so one other thing, and I'm gonna I'm gonna draw you into this because I think this is we come into your your area here is what, what's interesting to me uh, is hazy IPAs have been a real cultural phenomenon. Like if you go on beer Twitter or the, any of the blogs, the only thing people are talking about is hazy IPAs. They're not talking about uh, West Coast or regular IPAs. Yeah. And 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 yet uh, and, and certain breweries have made huge. Uh, hey, with these with these styles, we here here in Portland, uh, Great Notion um, has become the buzz brewery for like five years. I mean, they have been the the brewery for a long time based on uh, their devotion to these styles. Yeah. The, the New England breweries are still uh, kind of like at the top of the heap in terms of beer geek appreciation. Yep. And yet, these this style has never really transcended into a mass audience. Um, the the one exception really is Hazy Little Thing from Sierra Nevada, but other breweries have tried to go national with the hazy IPA phenomenon. It, it has not been broadly popular. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if that's. I mean, that's a statement of sort of the bifurcation of the market, um, which is kind of what I think of more and more when I think of these big regional or national breweries like the Sierra Nevadas and Widmer we were talking about earlier 
or last pod, and I can't remember. <laughs> you know, the, the sort of the people who will go and buy Sierra Nevada are different now than the people who uh, will go and buy just local beer. If that makes sense. And so, you know, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale still sells reasonably well, and there's a market for that and that niche of of customer. Um, maybe they're sort of similar to the old school, you know, Bud Budweiser customer or something like that. Um, and then there's a different market that's really all about sort of what's local and what's new and what's different. I think that's exactly right. It, it, when I when I was thinking of this, I, I didn't use this metaphor. I wrote a blog post on this same topic. <laughs> I didn't use this metaphor, but you will really appreciate it because uh, this comes from our lifetime. In the 19, uh, late 80s and early 90s, uh, college radio was really into alternative music. And it was incredibly important to a wide swath yep. of, uh, let's be honest, mostly white uh, uh, college students, uh, you know, bands like um, uh, the Pixies and R.E.M. and Nirvana. These bands were incredibly popular. Nirvana is a bad example because they actually had big commercial success. But some of these other bands never really had enormous commercial success. Yeah. Uh, you know, like the replacements. <laughs> the replacements, yeah, and yet uh, they were the the people who loved that music still listen to it and are still insanely devoted to it. You know, while the I, I don't even know in the nineteen late nineteen eighties, early nineteen nineties, what the pop stars were, but those are evanescent. You know, right? Consumed in large volumes, but then forgotten immediately. It's kind of the, it seems like an apt metaphor for hazy IPAs and kind of regular IPAs. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think that's right. I mean, I think that the IPA style, you know, will always be around and it's always going to be a catch-all uh, for, you know, this category of beer that that's really hop forward, uh, that um, is a little stronger. Um, and then just, you know, that's such a broad palette that you can paint on. Um, and one that just has all these positive connotations in the mind of a consumer. Uh, that it really allows brewers to just kind of go crazy nuts. By the way, I almost lost the thread here, but I wanted to bring a comment from David Flores, uh, sort of a mailbag insertion here into the main thing. He right. uh, he was re he was responding to my post about the same thing where I was talking about hazy or or non hazy IPAs. So he works at a uh, beer bar here in Portland. He said the most popular question at the bar is, is that IPA hazy or clear? So I think, I, th I think for, you know, for the people who go to beer bars, it's like, it's a critical question. And, and I think as people think about, um, if you're really into beer and you think about, uh, this question of what is a hazy IPA, uh, and how, how critical is it that it's hazy and has these characteristics we talked about it probably, if you're the kind of person who thinks about that, you're probably the kind of person who goes to beer bars and thinks of, and goes to breweries and buys four packs of colorful cans. And like, that's a, uh, you know, you're, you're listening to REM <laughs> in 1989 and it's, it may be different than the people go to the supermarket and look at the shelves and just see the word IPA. And that's kind of all they know. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, to sort of, jump on that point you know it, hazy is now just a new shorthand right for essentially like saturated juicy yeah. juicy i would say and that's why i think that the juicy moniker probably pleases brewers more because they can deliver you juicy all the same characteristics with or without the haze and so to sort of disentangle the haze with the juice might be sort of the next evolution maybe indeed
But right now, hazy is such a positive uh, connotation in consumers' minds, I think, uh, that, you know, you're crazy not to at least have a few, a, a beer or two on your, <laughs> on your menu that doesn't say hazy in front. Yeah, I, it is, it is true because uh, a, a big, a big part of the people who drink a lot of these beers and care deeply about them uh, are, are the beer geeks. And I think, you know, I, I think there's an argument to me to be made that uh, breweries rely overly on the opinions of those folks. And yet you also don't want to ignore them because these are the people who are most passionate about these beers and care most deeply about them. And so you, you want, th those are the people you care about, right? As a brewer, that's, those are your people. So yeah. you want to, you want to make sure they have a beer when they come into your brewery. They, that yeah. They're going to wow. They're going to be wowed by. And we should acknowledge that there's also sort of this negative, you know, there's all, there, there, there is some bit of a negative connotation that people have, you know, the overly juicy, sweet, uh, milkshakey, uh, hazy IPAs kind of got a bad name among the beer geeks because that was just like, you know, kind of like soda pop for the <laughs> for the beer right. folks or something, right? This yeah. goes so much to college radio too, like in music too, because then yeah. we're getting into that thing where like, oh, that's not cool. Oh, this is so cool. You know, all that stuff. Right. Uh, music becomes a real metaphor for subcultures that way, I think. Yeah. As an economist, I'm kind of very equivocal about all this. I think that whatever people like is great. And, uh, you know, if I was a brewery, I would try to find out what people want and give them that. Uh, but I think that, that I do think that the whole thing has evolved, um, as we've talked about and is finding a nice middle ground. I'd be interested to, to head back. I was supposed to head back to Maine, um, and Boston this summer, but didn't make it. So it'd be nice to go back, uh, hopefully next year and then see how things are, have evolved in, in the East coast, New England scene. Um, yeah, this was going to be my year to go back for Thanksgiving. And I think that's not in the cards either. I really regret it too. Yeah. Well, we'll give it another nine months and then we'll see how hazies have evolved in the East coast as well. And I wonder if they're going to be more, if we're going to find more bitterness, a little less haze, a little less milkshake, but we'll, we'll see. I'm super curious about that. We, we, we should move on, but we should also throw out a call to uh, the listeners. You guys, we, we know you, you guys think about IPAs a lot. What are your thoughts on where IPAs have been, where they're headed and what you're excited about? Let yeah. us know in the mailbag. And one of the things I'm curious is just what, if you, when you hear the word hazy, what it means to you and is it a positive or a negative thing? That would be interesting to know. Good. All right. Way to go. There you go. You have <laughs> right. your marching orders. So let's, let's dip into the mailbag. Uh, Let's do. So first off, we always appreciate your questions and comments. So please uh, do uh, send them along. Uh, in today's mailbag, we start with Scott DeLone from Westchester, Pennsylvania. Uh, Scott says, Stillwater Brewery is releasing an India Pale Hard Seltzer. <laughs> Oh, I didn't read this before. I know many. Oh, yeah. I know many. This is, this is the one that brings the two things together, the the news item. See, I, oh, brilliant. You, you just, you, you just think that I'm just screwing around. I don't have any idea what I'm doing, man. It's all, it's so tight. <sighs> Thematically, this is a tight ship. Oh, man. Even a blind dog finds a bone once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you're doing. <laughs> all right. So That's said, uh, Scott says, I know many things get the India Pale blank name as a marketing scheme. India Pale this, India Pale that. Uh, and uh, there is certainly a healthy debate to be had about where an IPA ends and a new style begins. But hard seltzer? That's not even beer. How can you give it the India Pale label? I would. I. I am fascinated to know what uh, is this like seltzer flavored with hops? Do you know anything about this? Yeah, I don't. Uh, I. I went. <clears throat> I think it was a 
a uh, Instagram post maybe that he referenced and I went and looked at it. I don't, I, as I recall, there wasn't a lot of info, um, but, but that, let let that not be a barrier for us to offer strong and certain opinions. <laughs> okay, let's just assume what you're going to do is do a seltzer, and you're going to try to sort of infuse hops somehow into your seltzer. Right. First off, God knows how you're doing that because you know. Well, I have a theory. Well, actually, I have a. If they're not doing it, I have a great idea. But okay. go ahead, seltzer seltzer makers, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that uh, the whole I think the whole success of seltzers right now are based on two things. One is low calories and alcohol, so great you can get your alcohol and not get fat, uh, and then and then on this kind of light fruity palate, right? And, Uncomplicated yeah. tastes fine. <laughs> Maybe not good. Sometimes, but, yeah. You know, Seapod ten or whatever it was. Right, the white buckets episode, whatever that was. Yeah, with that was... with uh, with that with Nat uh, uh, West from uh, River Nats. Yeah, definitely see that. Oh, what's his seltzer brand? Ah, uh, oh, too much of a deep sorry, cut. Nat. Sorry, sorry, Nat. But go go find his seltzer. <laughs> you go to his website. You can probably find it. Yeah. So I wonder, and maybe this is exactly how Stillwater makes it, but in the cannabis industry, one of the things that they do is they distill the terpenes, which are the flavor compounds that give the hops their incredible, yes, you know, their their flavor and aroma, uh, and then they reinfuse that back into various hot pro- various cannabis products. Right. I wonder if a seltzer company would do that. Um, you could actually make a fairly intense seltzer that tasted a lot like a, an IPA. And if they're doing that, I mean, the truth is I would actually like to taste that. <laughs> that sounds kind of good. I would be curious. It does not sound good to me. And this is the reason is that, uh, you know, a seltzer is based on almost nothing, right? There's no back there. And so just to have that hot flavor without any of the other balancing characteristics, uh, to my mind sounds gross, but I understand. Yes. I think you're probably right. If they're doing it, that's probably exactly how they're doing it. And you can infuse those flavors and you don't have the negative, you know, you don't have any of the bitterness, for example. And so right. I, I just wonder like what that's going to taste like. But the, the other thing I wonder is whether consumers are even, even want that in a seltzer, right? Totally. Yeah. It's, all of those are interesting questions. But but let's get back, me, let's get back to the actual question, which is, uh, do you object? So if that's it, so we immediately assumed that India pale means hop, right? Hop infused, hop flavors, hop forward. Is that- 100%. Do you find that objectionable or is that just like, that's how you should, you know, that's the term now and that's what it, that's the shorthand. Is that okay? You know, I think, I think if you're a brewery and you're making an India pale seltzer, you're actually doing- better work at driving the consumer back to beer, <laughs> focusing on beer, like giving a resonance for beer in your seltzer. And I actually approve of that more than if you're just doing a mango thing, yeah. which is like just completely cutting into your business and, and undermining your business. Yeah. So I, I got to say, yeah, maybe, maybe this is the best way to go. I don't know. Yeah. I, you, you I, know I, I get, I get the objection, Scott. I totally get the objection. Oh yeah, totally. I, I get it, but I'm, you know, my take, my, I'm, I'm pretty sanguine about this stuff. I just, think that ip whatever india pale whatever has become uh just a shorthand for this this idea that it'll feature hops and i'm totally I'm, and i'm okay with that yeah, okay, when, so- I, when i when i originally thought i was kind of offended but now that i've had this 
fantastic uh, fresh drop beer. Um, <laughs> suddenly, I'm much, I'm much more open to the idea. You're suddenly more magnanimous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. Okay. All right. I, I, I was clever and took the first uh, uh, mailbag entry. So now you're going to have to deal with the second one. It's true. Thomas Horton sent us a very long email. Um, uh, uh, he's from uh, British Columbia and he wanted to tell us what was uh, going down in uh, BC in terms of distribution reacting to our three-part series on distribution. Uh, and he, because the thing is, in other countries, they don't have our weird system. And so he wanted to point out a few interesting things. I'm going to summarize uh, Thomas's email because it, it is quite long. Um, so the first thing he says is uh, most breweries do, ex uh, to some extent, uh, self-distribute locally, especially uh, in the times of COVID, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Um, and then the second way they do it in, in British Columbia, and the truth is um, he, he's describing British Columbia specifically, and it could easily be that this is not uh, universal. We, we already talked about the, the milk bags of Ontario. So I, uh, we, will, we will assume only that Thomas is accurate about British Columbia. And if you live somewhere else and this is not the way it works, you can let us know. Um, the second way is that they distribute via government warehouse uh, where you put the beer in the warehouse and then bars and liquor stores can order from the government uh, warehouse directly. Uh, there's no cold storage there and um, the getting a listing at them is a problem. So a lot of people don't do that. Uh, I, my guess is <clears throat> he means a lot of craft breweries uh, who have uh, concern about perishable uh, products. So here we, I'm going to, I'm going to actually read the last way to do this in full. Uh, you can work with a private distributor. The largest one in Vancouver is called direct tap and we work with them. We don't sell our beer to the distributor distributor. We pay a price per liter to warehouse and uh, for them to deliver the beer for us. We don't have a sales staff working on our behalf. Customers contact the brewery directly to purchase beer. They don't. I'm sorry. They don't have a sales staff working on our behalf, which is really typical in the United States. Mm -hmm, yeah. If a customer is local to us, we deliver it ourselves. And if they are farther away, we put in an order to the distributor and they make the delivery for us. We're separated from Vancouver by a ferry ride. So we handle deliveries on this side of the ferry and let our distributor take care of things on the other. So... Uh, I'm going to throw this to you because you said uh, when we talked about this uh, in our in our third of the three um, that you would get rid of franchise laws and just let this thing exist as kind of a a natural part of the market and it and it sounds like uh, what Thomas is describing is that that that's how it works in in Canada. So thoughts? Well, it's, yeah, it's fascinating because that was my sort of thought experiment, which is what happens if you don't mandate this stuff? You know, would distributors exist? And would they exist in the same way that they are now? And one of the interesting things is this idea that they're, that distributors in Canada aren't part of the sort of sales team, because that's a big part of what uh, U.S. distributors um, do and sort of promote as an essential service of theirs, which is to go out and make those, uh, build those relationships and get your, your brand out there um, and do a lot of selling the selling aspect for you. So that's, that's interesting that in the absence of, of that system of that mandate in Canada, that um, you don't have that same kind of sales. 
and it's more just a just a pure it sounds more just like a pure logistics like we'll do we'll handle the logistics of getting your beer somewhere far away right um that actually makes sense to me i i assume that's how it is for most food products that uh, you have a distributor but that distributor is not involved in the sales uh, uh, of the product yeah that that seems typical to me the other big the other big difference and i don't know uh, you know i'm only going on my experience as a kid but the government beer store so certainly in ontario that uh we had the big government beer store so when it was time um you know we we our little cabin on the lake was rural anyway. And so we'd make the trip into town and go to the, and go to the big government, uh, warehouse. And, and I remember my, my relatives, they'd always get their bottles of rye and their, case, <laughs> and their cases of Molson, uh, well, dependent on the part of the family. So in Canada, you're, you're one or the other, you're Molson little bats. Uh, and now, now, was the rye, were the rye and Can uh, Molson, Can were they rye? consumed, what were they consumed, uh, at the same time, like shot the beer, <laughs> uh, they were often consumed in, in vast quantities, and yes, uh, often concurrent. Um, usually, the rye. Usually, the rye was the later, the later evening beverage, and the and, gotcha. and the beer was the all day. <laughs> anyway, you go into this big store. It was just a warehouse, a government warehouse. You, there's a little window, and you make your order, and then there is a big long. Uh, what do they call those things with all the wheels where the the cases roll out down a big chute? Anyway, Conveyor belt. Yeah. Right. Uh, wheelie wheelie conveyor belt thingy, and so that the little cases of beer would shoot out from this little uh thing, um, out of the back, and into this little retail part, and then they they'd give you your cases of beer from there. And so that's curious. I hadn't really thought about how that evolved in the craft beer, but yeah, that system is really designed for bulk. Um, you know, you come and buy your five cases of Labatt's, and you go off into rural Ontario, and uh. Uh, I would suspect that, yeah, that wouldn't be an easy way for craft beer to really sort of get out there and get known. And self-distributing, as we've talked about, is sort of inefficient, especially when you go far. In this case, you know, you got to cross a ferry and stuff, and that suddenly makes it a much bigger problem. So it's interesting. So it's it's interesting to know that cra- that distributors exist. That makes sense to me because I suspected that that would be the case. But I'm also, uh, uh, it's interesting to me and um, curious that that they don't have that same kind of uh, marketing. Totally. And I'll just throw in there one, one other thing, because this was a really fascinating question that uh, we got via Twitter um, that I don't know the answer to, but, uh, but I find it fascinating is um, someone was asking about whether uh, distributors can also be a, uh, a line of credit. Can they extend credit to their, to their customers? And I don't know the answer to that in the U S do you know? I don't, I have no idea. Uh, This person had worked for a distributor in a different category. So not alcohol. Uh, and that was part of the sort of what was essential. So uh, they were selling stuff to retailers and they would extend credit to the retailers to buy the stuff. And then they would actually act as that kind of credit institution as well. So uh, I just throw that out there because I thought that was fascinating. I'll try to find out the answer. Yeah, uh, that's interesting. I don't know the answer to that. I, I do know that we did not cover self-distribution at all. And I got an email from uh, Ben Parsons at Barelick Brewing, who uh-huh. uh, they do their own uh, distribution. And he wrote a long email correcting me on many things and talking about <laughs> many things. And I and I wrote him back and said, uh, "You, I, I take this as a volunteer to be our uh, informant on self-distribution. So I'm hoping to have Ben on the pod at some point in the future, so he can tell us about that. Uh, I think really important part of the whole the whole thing because so many brewers now also do self-distribution at least." in part at their, you know, usually in their local community. So yeah. 
we'll, we'll get to that too. Well, in particular, if you have to sign a contract for essentially life, that's great. Right. <laughs> that's, a great that's a crazy big decision. And so, yeah, it makes sense that you'd put that off if you could. Yeah. Excellent. Well, we're getting a little long, so we should probably wrap this up. Yes. Uh, before we do, I just want to say, uh, Zach Beckwith at Ben Brewing sent me these beers, and I want to thank him because both times I've had this beer, and it reminds me it's so critical. You should have 16 ounces of every beer you drink because your impression of a beer is almost certainly going to change if you have uh, like th two or three ounces of a beer versus 16 ounces. It's yeah. just, it's just, it just happens. And when I first had, when I, both times I've had now two pints of this beer, I had I, the first two or three ounces. I feel like, Oh my God, <laughs> I am, my eyes are as wide as they can be. And, I, you know, it's like I'm flying down a mountainside at a million miles an hour. And then by the end I'm settled in and I'm like, I want to drink this all night long. So, this is this is an intense thing. You gotta you gotta power through the first three or four drinks, and then woo, it's fun. Yeah, and I'll just I'm just gonna put a plug in for Ben Brewing in general because uh, these days in Ben the beer scene is so huge that some you know Ben is old school, been there forever. Uh, it's an amazing location right on the Mirror Pond, and it's great beer. And I think it sometimes gets gets forgotten, you know, as as these things evolve. The newest, latest is always what's on people's minds. So. I think that's right. And, and, uh, you know, this was, was Tanya Cornette was the, the famous brewer who was there for a long time and really established Ben Brewing. I think that brought a lot of attention. And then she went on to 10 Barrel, where she still is in Bend. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, Zach has picked up the pace at Bend and is doing great work there and they're making great beers. So, yes, definitely if you're in Bend, check out Ben Brewing. Yeah. And then just to say something we've said a number of times on this pod, you and I are just not. Uh, are not neither of us are the kind of people who go for the little tasters in 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 uh in brew pubs and bars because uh we both have a very strong opinion that you don't really know a beer until you've sat with it for a little while and it takes a lot more than one or two ounces in a little taster cup um to really Absolutely. get really get a sense it's not you know it's a it's a good way to to sort of uh, uh to introduce yourself to decide whether it's just in your wheelhouse at all or not but then but then the full pour is is important so all right. Well, uh, a few words going out. Please subscribe to us on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate us. Five stars, please. That helps other listeners find the show. We'd love to hear from you. So please send your questions or comments to jeff at beervanablog.com or on Twitter at beervanapod. Uh, and uh, we really appreciate those and keep them coming. Jeff. Did, did, did I? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, uh, I was just going to say that you blog at Beervana Blog and tweet at Beervana. That's good. Sorry. Uh, you went off script, so I thought you were done. I was going to say, did I did I hit the five stars, please, on the on the note last week? You, Yeah, you were a little slow last week. You're a little better this week, yeah. All right. <laughs> you know, we're distant, and you can blame it on the on the delay of the internet. The lag. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Uh, well, uh, let me conclude by saying Patrick tweets at Beeronomics. Indeed, I do. Uh, so uh, that ends the show. I'm going to say cheers to you. I have my Ecliptic Phaser Hazy IPA, which is um, sadly almost gone. I only plan to have a few sips. I know. I was, That's why I, these things happen. I think yours is a 12, mine is a 16, and I drank this whole thing. So here we are. Yeah. Well, you know, it's almost 8 o'clock in London, so we're good. <laughs> Perfect. All right, Ben. This is, I'm drinking the Ben Brewing Fresh Trop Fresh Hop IPA, characteristic of 
Oregon next year in 2021, when COVID is done, everybody should come here and drink these beers. They are spectacular. All right. All right. Cheers, Jeff. Cheers, Patrick. Hey, that works pretty well. <laughs>